in life that unfortunately is often overlooked or minimized. And I speak of the blessed experience of communion with God, also called fellowship with God. I say it's often ignored because other good things in the past have not been prominent, and now they've come to prominence, and this one has sometimes been pushed to the side, or replacements, pseudo-fellowship or communion with God. Yes, there's a place for these other things, such as serious Bible study and theology. I am a theologian. Or apologetics, the defense of the faith and warning about serious error out there or even in the churches. Or the importance of evangelism. Our church has a small evangelistic team and we should support and pray for missionaries. Very important. And of course, daily Christian life, raising your family, being uh, light and salt in the world by holy living. But let's not forget the blessed privilege of communion with God. This will be a, both a theological and devotional message on spiritual union and communion with God. 1 John chapter 1, starting at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, here's the phrase, that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship is the same idea as communion. I will use both terms more or less synonymously, and I will define them as we go along. This is our first of several verses we'll look at, but notice it says here, the fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. All good and godly things have their beginning in God. So let's lay the foundation for our communion with God by first saying, what is the communion within God? Mentions here the fellowship of the Father and the Son. Back in eternity past, there was only God. People ask me, what was God doing before he created the world? Well, one thing he was doing was predestining everything that would happen in history, and it all comes to pass as it had been pre-programmed by God. But something else. Even order in order before he predestined everything outside of God, what was going on within God? Bible says that God was already perfect. God had perfect perfection within himself as the Trinity. And without the Trinity, you can never grasp this great truth of communion. There was fellowship and communion between the Father and the Son. God being love, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. God is both the subject and the object of love. The Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Father, and the Spirit was involved as well. That's the root of everything we're looking at this, this afternoon. 
Jesus said the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. At his baptism, Jesus looked up and the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Several times Jesus said the Father loves the Son, and he also said the Son loves the Father. I love the Father. What about the Holy Spirit? Starting with the great Augustine, he said he is the bond and the conduit of the love from the Father to the Son. As Jonathan Edwards had pointed out, this was seen even at Christ's baptism. The Father said, this is my beloved Son, and he sent the Holy Spirit as a dove to signify this is my love. Because in Hebrew terminology, the, the, the dove is a symbol of love. Lovey-dovey, as it were. So within the Trinity, there is this, this love burning from all eternity, this holy energy, the love of the Father and the Son of the Spirit. That's what the Godhead was doing from all eternity. So there was union and communion within the eternal Trinity. The union is to be found in the unity of their one nature. The Father, Son, and the Spirit have the same divine nature, but they also have distinct but inseparable persons. The Father is not the Son, they are not the Spirit. But there is where the communion comes in. There is a perfect fellowship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And this has been subject of much theological study in the last 20 years, what did Jesus mean when he said, I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Not talking about in time, but within the Trinity and eternity. What do you mean we are in each other and the Spirit is in us? The great theologians have given it the term from Greek, perichoresis, which means it was not just their shared nature, but the interaction between their persons, something being, now notice the word, communicated. Communion, communication, community between them. What then was it? Has God given us a hint what was going on between the members of the Trinity that can be described as communion? Well, some have said it's, it's life because Jesus himself said in John chapter 5 that the Father has life within himself and he has given to the Son life within himself. And that's been developed in the theology of the eternal generation of the Son. And from that comes the eternal procession of the Spirit, beginning within the Trinity. Yes, this interrelation of the Father and the Son and the Spirit does involve life, but something else. Love. God is love. And the Father eternally bestows love upon the Son. It's returned by the Son to the Father through the Holy Spirit from all eternity, this this energy of holy love from all eternity. And there's something else. Within the Trinity there is this bond. And you see, it's a living love is life because, because it's from all eternity, but it's also, this is the holiness of God. It's not like love and holiness are somehow irreconcilable. They're simply two sides of the same coin. There is this eternal love of the Father to the Son, and it's a jealous love that nothing should ever intrude upon it, and if it does, that intrudes upon the holiness of God. You could also say within the Trinity there is this, this power source. It's infinite and always there, never any weakness within God. And the power of God is, as it were, radiating between the 
members of the Trinity. The illustration I use is it's like, for example, the, the, a dynamo. You know what that is. That's the interaction of two power fields, electricity. And it produces something third. So it's a, like, a, well, it's not a dynamo in the Trinity. It's a trinamo. The three members interacting more like, well, I mentioned life. What's the basis of human life? Come on, someone, any biology students? Is the DNA circular, what do you call that? The two double helix? Within God, it's the triple helix. Oh, there's depth in this. So what I'm saying is that it's all part of the communion of the three persons of the Trinity. And then the Trinity decide to show and share this eternal communion within God to show his glory. You see, that was also within the three members of the Trinity. They beheld each other's beauty. That's part of seeing their love within each other. And they decide to show this internal life and love and holiness, beauty and glory outside the Trinity, but there was nothing else. So that's where predestination comes in, where God says, I will decree to show and share this with something outside of me. And so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then the different levels from un, uh, non-living things all the way up to the animals and up to the angels, but then human beings in particular. And how would God do this? The Bible says the focal point of everything God does is through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Colossians chapter 1. So within Jesus himself becoming man, we see this, this principle of communion and perichoresis. How does it operate? When Jesus, the Son of God, became a man, the unique joining of deity and humanity we call that the hypostatic union. And from the union flows the communion within the Lord Jesus. Do you see the similarity with the Trinity? Trinity is one divine nature and three divine persons interacting. And in Jesus there's one person, but there's the union of the two natures again interacting. I know this is deep, but this is wonderful biblical theology. How does the two union, the, the union of the two natures of Christ interact? For example, how does his deity and his humanity interact? That is a profound mystery. And only part of it has been revealed to us. Here's one example. It says in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus, even when he was 12 years old, knew he had to be in his father's house. How did he know he was the son of God? In his humanity, in his deity, of course he knew, he remembered. He has, he has always been God. How does humanity know? He said, well, study of the scripture, yes. Mary and Joseph told him, virgin birth, your father is God. Maybe from the rabbis expounding the scriptures, there's something within him, like a holy intuition says, Jesus, that's you, promising the Messiah, the Son of God. But something else. His deity informed his humanity of who he really was. That was part of that perichoresis, the communion of the two natures in the Lord Jesus. Just go home and meditate upon that. And as John MacArthur says, you'll find yourself under the bed reciting the Greek alphabet. <laughs> These are deep 
profound things. Now my point is, there is no union or communion with God except through Jesus Christ. If he had not become the God-man, we could never have communion with God. It was for the plan of God. God's plan was to send his son, the Lord Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, to become the God-man, thereby opening the gates where we, we can have union and communion with God. Are you with me so far? Let's continue. That's the foundation. I mentioned the Holy Spirit. There is communion with the Spirit. Philippians 2 1 says, the fellowship of the Spirit. And there's that great benediction, 2 Corinthians 13 14, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Fellowship, communion of the Holy Spirit. Now, God created Adam and Eve, and in the garden they had this communion with God because there was no sin to block it. And they enjoyed love with God, and they beheld the glory of God. And of course, there was holiness. All those things that characterize the internal union, communion with God, were on display in the Garden of Eden temporarily. And then sin came in, and it broke that union in the communion. There was no more holiness and love. They would die. There was no more of the light. There was no more display of God's love. And that state has been passed on to humanity ever since. We are alienated from God. We need to be reconciled, and notice the word, reunited with God. We have to have union with God before we can have communion again with God. Union precedes communion. Here's an illustration. It's like a lamp and sitting there by itself, no light, no life, no glory. You plug it in. It's got union, but you have to flip the switch so that now it'll have communion. The electricity flows into the incandescent bulb or the LED bulb and it now shines in light. It has to be turned on. There has to be union, but union without communion is empty. We need to be united with God before we can have a living, loving fellowship and communion with God. So what do we mean communion? Let's look at the two words in the Bible. The Hebrew word is a derivation, a form of a very popular word, dabar in Hebrew, which can mean word, but the expression of a word, what we would call, now notice the word, communication. That's similar to communion. And so it's based in conversation, having something in common with someone, talking. And not just talking to someone, but listening to that person, having a conversation is similar to communion. That's what was going wrong with the, within the trade. They were communicating love and glory and so forth. Think of the word communication as a form of communion. And also community and having things in common. So we find examples of several people in the Bible having this communion with God because they had already been united with God in salvation. Take, for example, Abraham, called the friend of God. He believed God and was justified. And then in Acts 18.33 it says, And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham. He had been speaking to him, listening to him, and enjoying personal fellowship. They had already been united when he is justified, now they're communing together. 
and we find the example of Moses, who met God at the burning bush, who believed in the Messiah to come. And then in Exodus 31, 18, it said, when he, God, had made an end of communing with him. These men of God were blessed with the idea, the, the, the experience of not only being united with God, but communing with God, knowing God very deeply. The idea of communication is essential to communion. We commune with God by listening to him. How? By waiting for voices? No. You start hearing voices, you need a doctor. You've been on drugs or things like that. You, well, there are people that seriously, unfortunately, do hear voices. And doctors have to prescribe medication. How do we hear the voice of God? Not like the prophets that actually heard it audibly. That form of divine revelation communication ceased with the apostles. But God has left us something from the apostles and the prophets who did hear the very voice of God, and in some rare cases saw the face of God. They have left us the Holy Bible. This is how God speaks to us. This is how we hear God, and we respond. Remember, communion, communication is two ways. How do we respond? We hear the voice of God when we study it in the Bible, and we return it back to God in prayer in the appropriate manner to what we hear. There's another interesting example in the Old Testament of God communing with humans. Exodus 25:22. This was in that holiest place in the whole universe. Planet Earth, Israel, in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, and God says, I will meet you there. One day a year, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, that one man would come in and make the special sacrifice. And the Bible says if he did it just right, as been commanded by God through Moses, and he came with faith and worship, God displayed his glory as if to say, I will receive this and I will commune with you. Here's the verse. Exodus 31, Exodus 25:22. I will commune with you above the mercy seat. How did God do that? He displayed that bright light of glory, which is essential to communion with God, and he actually spoke. The Jews had the ancient phrase for that. That was the visible Shekinah glory of God, and that was the audible Bath Kol, the daughter of the voice of God, as it were. And it says, I will commune with you where? Above the mercy seat where the sacrifice of blood and the lamb had been made. And God commune. That has fascinated me. Think about that. What did that high priest see and hear and experience at that moment? Think about that. He saw the light of God himself. That bright light, not the face of God, because God himself had said, nobody can see my face and live, but the brightness of his glory, but not the face of God. And he got to hear God, and it says he communed with God. Brethren, we get a small taste of that when we know God and commune with him. We sense his glory. We don't see his face. We don't hear his voice. But the Bible is alive, and we say, this is the word of God. We commune with God. That's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? New Testament word for communion or fellowship is koinonia. 
First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship or communion of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice again, Father and Son. Philippians 3.10 gives us another aspect how we can commune with God and have koinonia, fellowship. Philippians 3.10, oh, that I might know him. Wait a second, Paul, you already knew him. He says, no, that I want to know him more. I want to commune with him more. He says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Justin, that's what you were talking about. The blessing of affliction, not on necessarily on the mountaintop, you know, the triumphalism that says, victorious Christian life, no problems, God's always wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise. There's a technical term for this, Don Baloney. <laughs> we suffer tears in the valley, but we can have fellowship in the valley. It says here, the fellowship, the koinonia of his son, how? Philippians 3.10, the fellowship of his sufferings. How in the world do we commune with God in his, in his the sufferings? Because Christ had suffered. And we meditate upon his sufferings, we draw close to him, and when we suffer, he draws close to us. It says in the Old Testament, in all their afflictions, he was afflicted. Brethren, he literally feels your pain. And when he says, I have sympathy, I have empathy for you, that is communion. It's like when you're in the hospital and a loved one comes and weeps with you. There's a fellowship of the tears. When we suffer persecution, he comes and comforts. When we have physical or emotional affliction, he is near with communion and fellowship. Oh, there's a great blessing in this. So what hinders our communion with God? Two things first. Of course, sin. That's what got Adam and Eve thrown out of the Garden of Eden. They sinned. No more communion, no more fellowship. When we sin, it's as it were, draws a curtain on our fellowship with God. We need to repent and restore that communion. But there's a second one that would surprise you. It's what the Bible calls three or four times in the New Testament, the cares of this life. They're not sinful, but you just have to do them. It takes up your time and your energy. You have to go to work, you have to study, you have to eat, you have to do the wash, things like this. And so we set aside communion with God and we make up excuses, well, I'm just too busy. Maybe as a brand new Christian I did that or when I'm at a weekend retreat at a church or something like that, but they say I'm too busy. Especially busy mothers that have a bunch of children and they got to do the laundry and cook and all this. Ladies, listen, I want to give you an example. You can write this down and maybe imitate this godly woman that maintained daily communion with God. Her name was Susanna Wesley, the mother of the great John Wesley and Charles Wesley. Her husband was a pastor, so Susanna and her husband had 19 children. You think you got a lot? Now, some of them had died in childbirth or in infancy, but over the space of 20 years, they always had about 10 kids there. Imagine raising 10 kids, having to do the laundry, the cooking, without washing machines, without dryers, without modern appliances. They didn't even have electricity back then. And yet she was very godly, very disciplined. She spent time with every one of the children. She taught the older girls to become mothers by taking care of the younger girls, taught the boys to become men by 
lugging in large buckets of water and strengthening them and teaching and she spent time with all of them but number one priority she had communion with God she was a woman of prayer how in the world could she find time for that here's how she did it she tell the children time is children for, for the mother it's time for mother to pray go in the other room and read the Bible do your lessons and don't disturb mother unless it's an absolute emergency like the house is on fire. And so what Susanna would do is the children would all get there and they'd always obey mother. And Susanna would sit in a certain chair, take her apron and throw it up over her head and begin to pray and meditate and commune with God. And those children knew you don't interrupt mother when she's under the apron. What was she doing? She was communing with God, remembering Bible verses, maybe even humming a hymn, drawing close to God. You too can do that. It doesn't have to be in church. It can be in your own house. What about the men? Men, get alone with God. Go out in the garage, put a sign out there, do not disturb. Go into your workshop or in the attic. Bible mentions Isaac, who went out in the field and meditated. That could be translated. He went out and communed with God. That's Genesis 24. It can be in any place, any place, every place. But repent so you do not hinder spiritual communion with God. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, What communion has light with darkness? 1 John 1.6, If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie, don't practice the truth. So repent. And when you come in contact with God in communion, you first have to repent, remove the barriers. That's what the priests did back there in the temple in the tabernacle. When they go in to commune with God and have the offerings, they first had to wash their hands symbolically saying, Lord, wash my heart so that I don't block worship and communion with you. And there are special times that we should set aside to have communion with God. Daily devotions. But God has set aside one very special time once a week. You know where I'm going with this. The Lord's Supper is also called what? Let's say it together. Communion. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Now, the different churches and theologians have different ways of celebrating this. Of course, you can set aside the Catholic idea that say the elements physically change, but not visibly. Then you have the Lutheran view, the Anabaptist view, but I myself believe that the biblical view is what's called the Reformed Doctrine of Communion at Communion. It's this. At Communion, we look back and remember Jesus. He said, do this in remembrance of me. We look forward because it says we celebrate this until the Lord comes. But what about the here and now? That's where we commune with Christ. He is present at this table invisibly, yearning to have communion with us. This is a special time. Please don't miss it. We do it in our church every Sunday like they did in the New Testament. They met every day on the Lord's Day to break bread and to have this communion with him. Now, in chapter 10, in 1 Corinthians, he's talking about the Lord's Supper, 
and he warns them about a misuse of the idea of spiritual communion. Not spiritual communion with God. But he says in the pagan ceremonies, they're having communion not with God, but with false gods. Listen to what he says, verse 20. I do not want you to have fellowship, communion with demons. That's what's going on in their religious ceremonies. They are consorting with evil spirits. Yes, it's an experience. It's an evil one. That's why Christians should never have anything to do with pagan worship services. You're on vacation in, in, uh, in India. Don't go visit the local Hindu temple. That's where demons hang around. They hang around in Muslim mosques. You go to those services, you are consorting with evil spirits. That's the satanic counterfeit of what happens at true communion. When you remember the Lord Jesus and he draws near and you show your love to him and he visits us, at communion. Now let's go to another aspect of this communion with God. I mentioned predestination. Why did God elect some people to and save them? The Father elected them, the Father redeemed them, the Holy Spirit brings them to Christ and regenerates them. What's the reason? The ultimate reason, of course, is the glory of God. Everything is for the glory of God, but one of the proximate means of that is he chose a people to be the bride of his son. Notice the Trinity again. The Father chose that I'm going to choose a bride for you, my son. And the human analogy is built upon that. Ephesians 5. Marriage is the deep and deepest of all relationships. And in marriage there should be talking and listening and opening up of hearts, giving and receiving love. Adam and Eve had this relationship with God in the garden. And they believed the devil's lie and they forfeited it all. Well, let me start by the irons out. This illustration, Ephesians 5, human marriage should imitate this divine marriage of Christ and his bride. Married couples should commune with each other. Keep the fire going, the lines of communication and love. That's true romance. But sometimes marriages... They lose this. They wonder, what went wrong? What, what, well, we remember the honeymoon. Everything was so wonderful. Honey, what went wrong? Uh, you stopped loving me. I stopped loving you. The spark is gone. They fail to keep the fires of communion going. They fail to talk. Or they talk, but they don't listen. They're waiting for the other person to stop talking before they can jump in and talk, and that leads to arguments. But husband and wife should commune by sharing their deepest thoughts, their feelings, their fears, their joys, their tears, their memories, their love. And it should grow in the best way. In fact, the only way it can truly grow is when it's husband and wife and Jesus Christ is the center of that marriage. Communion also means intimacy. Wives crave it. But so do husbands. But somehow they feel, maybe I can't open up enough to that person. Open up your heart. Be vulnerable. And that opens the door to communion with your spouse. Back to God. We are to commune with God, not just in our minds as we meditate upon his word, but in our hearts. That's the inner sanctum of what God has created within us. That's where he desires most of all 
to commune with us. Remember back to the temple, the holiest of holies, that's who, as it were, symbolic of us, our heart. God wants to commune with us in the deepest part of us, the seat of our, our affections. David learned this. Psalm 4, 4, he says, commune with your heart on your bed and be still. Psalm 77, 6, I will commune with my heart. And that's on a one-to-one -one basis, like some of us old fogies still remember long-distance calls that were called person-to-person. -person. I don't know, they probably haven't, they haven't done that in 30 years. Remember station-to-station, -station and you end up with some guy that you don't even know on the other end. Person-to-person -person meant I know that person, and it's a two-way conversation. That's what God yearns to have with us personally, not just theoretically. This is what the old Puritans would call experimental religion. It affects your experience, your heart, the affections of your deepest yearnings and desires. We need to get along with God. Yes, there's a time for family devotions, but parents still need to do it individually. But sometimes they're caught up in the cares of this life. But there's one group of Christians that have this opportunity because they don't have as many of the cares of the life. I'm speaking of my fellow singles. You have that extra time. Don't waste it. But yet, if you don't have a spouse, and if you don't know the true joys of communion with God, something else comes in. Loneliness. But do you not see that's an opportunity for a deeper fellowship with God? You've all heard of the great woman of God, Elizabeth Elliot. She'd been widowed twice. She knew what loneliness was like. She buried two husbands and then her third husband had to care for her through years of Alzheimer's. But Elizabeth Elliot said this, and I pass it on to my fellow singles. She says, the secret is to turn your loneliness into solitude and turn your solitude into communion with God. She knew whereof she was speaking. Communion means spiritual intimacy with the depths of our heart, not just husband and wife, but Christian and our heavenly husband, heart to heart with God and his personal, with the Father. Notice First John 1, 3. We have this fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with the Spirit. What a blessed privilege this is to commune with God our Creator, each member of the Trinity. How? With your Bible and with prayer going into the depths of a loving relationship with God. That means we direct all the thoughts of our mind and all the affections of our heart toward God. Turn off everything else, every thought about what you're going to do Tuesday afternoon or your lessons for school. Turn off all of that. In fact, I would dare say, turn off all electronic devices. TV, cell phones, tablets, the radio. Those would only get in your way. Now let's go in depth on this because I know some will challenge me on this. Yes, we, electronic devices have their place. I have two computers. We use various things in our recording booth here. We can live stream the truth, and that's good. But my point is, that which is natural can never be the means for communication with God who is supernatural. I go back in my mind 40-something years ago when 
household computers were a brand new thing. Some of y'all remember the big debate, is it going to be Apple or is it going to be Mac? And Bill Gates didn't even have gray hair back then. He was just a kid. This was fairly new back then, late 70s. But some godly Christians were wise enough to see that this had a great use but could be abused. And I still remember the great, probably the greatest preacher in America at that time, the great Albert Martin. And in his own distinctive way, he says, My brethren, never forget, you can never, ever program the Holy Spirit with a computer or anything else. That's profound. They have their place. But a computer can never take the place of the Holy Spirit or Holy Scripture. Now, it was about that time, in fact, it was a couple of years earlier, about 1980, I learned about something else that everybody's talking about today. It seems to be the latest thing, artificial intelligence. You hear about that every day, and it's like every week there's some new big breakthrough. This isn't new, folks. I heard about it when I was doing my PhD in Edinburgh, and a good friend of mine, Danny Kopeck, he's doing a PhD, and I was witnessing to him, and we had you know, good friendship, and I said, Dan, what are you doing your PhD in? He said, artificial intelligence. I said, what's that? Is that kind of like computers? He said, no, it's beyond computers, Kurt. You are the generation that's beginning to learn computers. We're way beyond that. We're laying the foundation for the next step. And I said, well, can you put it in language? By the way, he was extremely intelligent. He was international grandmaster of chess. He was good. I know, because he beat me. He was, he was a lot better than me. He beat me in like eight moves. And I went to a chess tournament where he played 25 guys, and in two hours he beat all but one. Try it. And I said, Danny, what's artificial intelligence? Is it like computers? No, computers compute artificial intelligence. Think. They can generate new thoughts, as it were. And that will, I, I said, simplify. He says, robots. You mean like science fiction, those old 50s movies, this big, no, no, no. It's going to be almost like cyborgs. That's what they're talking about today. Robots that almost look and sound human because they generate new thoughts that had not been programmed in. Artificial intelligence. Now, this, computers and other such devices have their uses, but have misuses. I hope you've heard about these studies about the, the avalanche of social media in the last 10 years has opened doors of communication, but it's actually hurt true social relationships. Because kids, for example, they always think in terms of their thumbs on some device texting, and they're not communicating personally with someone. And so they go on a date and they say, well, how can we talk? Well, you go in that room and I go in this room and we'll text each other. They're misusing this. The same thing with artificial intelligence and computers. My point is, that which is natural cannot be the means of supernatural communion with God. It's only by the Bible, by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit through Holy Scripture, to Christ, to the Father, that's the order. Shall I say that again? The Holy Spirit through Holy Scripture, to the Son, to the Father. That is the means. The Holy Spirit is the conduit between us and the, and the Son of God. And how do we get in touch with the Holy Spirit? The Holy Scriptures. This is the means He has given to us. Now, another word that's often used for communion is mysticism. Now, that's a word that can be used rightly or wrongly. 
Tomorrow, Phil Johnson will be addressing false mysticism. What is that? That idea is you turn off your mind, you don't open books or anything, you just kind of feel your way with some sort of osmosis or something out there. People think that's being spiritual. No, you're opening the door to demonic influences. That's false mysticism. But the great Martin Lloyd-Jones had a good observation on this. He said the answer to false mysticism is not no mysticism, but true mysticism. You could also say the answer to false spirituality, the answer to false communion, is not no communion and no spirituality, but true communion and true spirituality. And so true communion with God is not turn off your mind, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, I will pray with the spirit and with the mind. And so there is a valid use of true spiritual mysticism. Got to be careful with that word. But don't we sing in one of the hymns, quote, mystic, sweet communion? It's not mere feelings of ecstasy or mere emotionalism because some people go overboard in that direction and, and cause an overreaction in the opposite direction to turn off all emotions and thinking just in terms of thinking but not with the heart. God wants both the mind and the heart. Emotionalism is a pseudo-spirituality that thinks that, well, true spirituality is gauged by the intensity of religious feelings. And you've been in those meetings or maybe you've seen it on TV. You know, people jumping, dancing, and the flashing lights and the smoke, and they say, man, we've got our praise on. We've experienced God. No, you've experienced religious emotionalism. That's not communion with God. That's not God's means. And in those so-called churches, studying the word of God is about that shallow, and it produces virtually no true communion. True religious emotions are grounded in Scripture and guided by the Holy Spirit. So it's not without emotions, it's holy emotions, or what the old Puritans called affections, the desires of your heart. And God desires this communion with us in the proper way. Let me quote one of the great hymns that you probably sung a hundred times. It's the hymn, I am thine, O Lord. Oh, the pure delight of a single hour that before thy throne I spend. When I kneel in prayer, and with thee, my God, I commune as friend with friend. Do you do that? Do you commune with God friend to friend? God called Abraham the friend of God. Let me throw this in. Has that ever struck you the enormous privilege that God condescends to make us his friends? Jesus said to his apostles, I'll call you my friends. What a privilege. And that's enjoyed when we commune with him, friend to friend. Do you do this? Do you have this blessed communion with the Lord Jesus Christ? But Christians waste this. They waste their heart energy and their affections on other things that are just like passing fast. It's like candy that gives a sugar rush, but that doesn't give any nutrition, no meat on the bones. It's like what it says in the Bible, they have sought out cisterns without water, and they have forsaken the, the fountain of living water that will always satisfy. They are like that wife in the Song of Solomon shutting out her husband that wants romantic intimacy and she says, ah, it's too late, I can't get out of bed so she locks the door. Christians often do that. 
has it occurred to you that our Lord Jesus, our heavenly husband, desires earnestly and craves spiritual intimacy with his bride? That's you. He craves that. He desires. He looks forward to the wedding feast. That's why he's chosen you. That's what he thought of on the cross. I'm dying to secure my loving bride. And he wants to share that love and fellowship with us now. How dare we shut the door on that and say, not now, I'm too busy. <clears throat> By the way, that incident in the Song of Solomon, which is a picture of Christ and his bride, is echoed in the New Testament in a way people miss. Many of you know that great verse, Revelation 3.20. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I'll come in and dine with him. That is what the exegetes of the New Testament call an allusion. Not illusion, but it alludes to things in the Old Testament. I stand at the door and knock. That song of Solomon. The husband banging at the door. Let me in, woman. I love you. I want spiritual intimacy with you. Jesus is knocking on the door of the hearts of his bride. He says, I want to come in. I want to have communion with you. But why do we waste our time on other things? It's because we don't really appreciate communion with him. And so we get our thrills on other things. Modern technology, sports, entertainment, movies, you name it. And we get a thrill that doesn't count. And it's as if God Almighty looks upon us and says, you get your kicks on all those things, they don't satisfy, and not even, some of them are sinful, some of them not. You want real excitement, you want the real meaning of life, he says, come to me. God is infinite, and all the joys of exploring God with communion, there are depths that we cannot imagine until we go into the depths of communion with God. He says, explore me, commune with me. You want love? I've got an infinite amount. You want holiness, true beauty? Come to me. And that means we need to commune with him. What then do we experience and enjoy when we communicate and commune with God and when we fellowship with him? Just this. God himself, personally, spiritually like Adam and Eve in the garden this is often overlooked and I can't think of very many men and women in the last generation that have appreciated this well Joe Beakey for one some of you all know about the great A.W. Tozer listen to what he said on this he said God formed for us formed us for his pleasure and so formed us that we, as well as he, can, in, in divine communion, enjoy the sweet and mysterious mystery of kindred personalities. The fellowship of God is, a, is delightful beyond all telling. True Christian communion, listen closely, true Christian communion consists in the sharing of a presence. The presence of God. It's not simply theoretical, it's experiential. You know God. The deeper you commune with him, you say, I know him. Remember Paul says, oh, that I might know him more. When you commune with him in God's way, it's the presence of God himself. It's a holy presence. I've referred to those that think that they're enjoying God and they're worshiping and 
They're getting to praise on it to all sorts of emotion and I ask them, you say, you say you're experiencing the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit? Do you sense holiness in God and unholiness in your own evil heart? If you don't, that's not communion with God. That's not the Holy Spirit you're experiencing. So when we communicate with God through the Holy Spirit, we immediately sense his holiness and our unholiness, our unworthiness. And so the deeper we go into God, it's not like we sense, well, I'm on the mountain, I'm victorious. The more we sense our unholiness, the more we know God and we know more of his holiness. And we're like Moses on our face before the burning bush. And yet, being redeemed and having the Holy Spirit in us, this moves us to desire deeper communion with God. And we desire more holiness. This is part of the process of sanctification. In communion with God, we sense something else that is rooted in the Trinity. We sense and experience his love. The deeper you go into communion with God in this spiritual romantic intimacy, we sense God really does love me. The great John Calvin put it like this, one of my favorite quotes. He said, we will never progress very far in the Christian life until we realize God really does love us. That's profound. He really does. And the deeper we enjoy communion with him, we realize he really does love us far more than we imagine and certainly more than we desire. So we experience his love, his holiness, his peace, his glory. Recently I was reading some of the unpublished manuscripts of my favorite theologian, Jonathan Edwards, and he says it's similar to the burning heart that the men on the road to Emmaus experienced when Jesus just kind of came out of nowhere and met with them, and they didn't realize who he was, but he opened the scriptures, and they later said, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened the scriptures to us? And so Edwards said, when the Holy Spirit opens the scriptures to us, it's similar to a burning heart, like John Russell, when he was converted, he said, at a certain time there in East London, he said, my heart was strangely warmed, and that's when he was saved. The burning heart, the burning of God's glory and love and holiness, and we sense it by the Holy Spirit. And this can be anywhere. Take a walk in the woods, in the park. Jonathan Edwards, did, 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 by the way, his wife was also busy. They had like nine or ten kids. Most of them, all but one, were girls and took up a lot of their time. But every day, he and his wife would pray together and individually. And so he'd get on his horse, ride out into the woods, tie it up, kneel beside an old log, and open up his heart and commune with God. It can be anywhere, everywhere. Get alone with God in places where you're surrounded by other people that don't know God. You know, they talk about being lonely in a crowd, but you can have communion with God anywhere, such as in the waiting room of the doctor's office or in the hospital when you're sick, ravaged with pain, wondering if you're going to survive. Cry out to God and I've heard testimonies from people in our church saying, I was never closer to God when I was in such pain. One of the blessings of affliction Justin talked about, he said, it's as if Jesus came and sat right down next to me and wiped away my tears. That's communion with the Savior. So it can be anywhere. 
everywhere. And some Christians begin to learn this blessed experience young in their life. Some, of course, think that they later outgrow it, but some do. I mentioned, I'm going to give you another illustration of this. Let me read you this. About 300 years ago, there was a teenage girl in New England that believed in Jesus and loved Jesus, and she had learned this secret. And there was another young man, just a few years older than her, that said, there's something about her I like. No, I love. And this drew him to her. And so he sent her the following love letter to Sir Pierpont. And so the writer said this. They say there is a young lady in New Haven who is beloved of that almighty being who made and rules the world, and that there are certain seasons in which this great being in some way or other invisible comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight, and that she hardly cares for anyone else except to meditate on him that she expects after a while to be received up where he is, to be raised out of the world, to call up into heaven, being assured that he loves her too well to let her remain at a distance from him always. There she is to dwell with him. This is what she's meditating on. To dwell with him and to be ravished with his love, favor, and delight forever. Therefore, if you present all the world before her with the riches of its treasures, she disregards it and cares not for it and is unmindful of any pain or of affliction. She has a strange sweetness in her mind and sweetness of temper, uncommon purity in her affections. It's most just and praiseworthy in all her actions and you could not persuade her to do anything, any thought, word, or sinful deed if you were to give her all the world lest she should offend this great being. She is of a wonderful sweetness, calmness, and universal benevolence of mind. Well, what a love letter. Especially after those times in which this great God has manifested himself to her mind. She will sometimes go about singing sweetly from place to place and seems to be always full of joy and pleasure and no one really knows why and for what. She loves to be alone and to wander in the fields and on the mountains and seems to have someone invisible always conversing with her. Sarah Pierpont. Oh, that young man was Jonathan Edwards, and they later got married. They knew communion with God, and they shared it with each other. I like to commune with God in various parks when I travel. The Meyer Gardens in Grand Rapids, Michigan, the Botanic Gardens in New Orleans where I was raised, the Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh, Scotland where I studied, the Huntington Gardens out in Pasadena, California, and other ones. It's almost like I'm walking in the Garden of Eden. And I know people will say this is schmaltzy, but I often hum the great song in the garden. He walks with me, he talks with me. And I remember those verses that say, well, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. We can commune with him. We used to call this having a daily quiet time. I wonder how many Christians still have a quiet time. It's not so quiet. Got to get the kids ready. Got to gobble down that breakfast. They need to get quiet with God. God says, be still and know that I am God. How about spending time with God? Spiritual communion with God is something 
almost unknown and unintelligible to people today. It's totally unknown and unintelligible to unbelievers. If you're an unbeliever, you simply cannot comprehend what I am saying, what the Holy Scripture says about communion with your Creator, because you don't know Him. Please don't pretend that you know Him and that you experience this, because you don't. Back to what I said earlier, you first have to have union with him before you can have communion with him. And that union comes about when the Holy Spirit gives you a new birth. You believe and then you know him, you're a new creature. So come and believe in Jesus and be united with him. And then you'll have that blessed experience of spiritual communion with him. Christians are united with God. We have union, but we need more communion. We need to develop that over and over, deeper and deeper. But many don't. Some people even mock this. I've heard some say, well, it was like that when I became a Christian. I was just young and naive and I experienced it. Yeah, those fond memories, but you can't go home again. And they say, well, and they'll even say, well, doesn't the Bible say when I was a child, I spoke as a child, became a man, I put away. No, this is something you never outgrow. Again, I read that in Jonathan Edwards, one of the unpublished manuscripts. He says, even the greatest Christians, the most mature, are still just a little child in God's sight. We should have that childlike faith that Phil talked about a little while ago. That as it were, a little child wants to crawl up on Daddy's knee, and Daddy says, do you want anything? I just want to snuggle you, Daddy. I just want to be with you. Or with Mama. Husbands and wives, God yearns out for us, and we should avail ourselves of that and not scorn, upon, scorn it. Non-Christians don't know what they're missing. And when I hear a Christian say, well, I don't experience this sort of communion with God and the burning heart and tears of love and a sense of glory, and I look at them and I say, you must have a very cold spiritual life. And I see that sometimes even marriages, the fire has gone out, and I said, you need to learn how to fall in love with each other. How is it with you, my brethren? Are you communing with God? How deep is your communion with him? Go into the depths. Oh, a little dessert, a little piece of ice cream on top of the pie. When you experience communion with God, you are experiencing a little bit of heaven on earth. This is what we will experience in heaven, communion with God forever. May that be the lot of all in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Father, lead us into the depths of communion with you. You have put your spirit in us, and the spirit has put your love within us. And we can remember wonderful times of fellowship with you. We yearn for more. Give us repentance so that nothing would hinder that. Help us be zealous to pursue more communion with you. For that is what you zealously desire for us and with us. Grant it, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.